Well, hello, John. Hello, Todd. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It's good to see you both. Uh, I've been traveling. I was uh, out in California working in a trial and back to deposition and back to trial. I mean, I've got a pretty busy schedule over the next month, but I'm glad that uh, we're able to get together and uh, record another episode of, uh, of Flight Safety Detectives. I'll tell you what, this general aviation flying is getting crazier. It just, I don't know what it is. I don't know what's in the water, but uh, some of the accidents that have happened recently and uh, the accident that we're going to talk about today, I, I just, I do not understand what is going through a pilot's head. And there is a joke there and I won't use it because this is a family show, but I just don't understand what's going on with these guys and their poor decision-making and their, their belief that they are invincible. Now I know John is invincible because look, he's still around. So I'm, uh, I'm glad that uh, you guys are here. So uh, what's been going on with you, John? I know you were on the road for a while as well. Yeah, I've been traveling and I'm about to travel again tomorrow morning for a short trip. And then I got a trip to Seattle coming up here pretty quick. And then another one to Florida, Northern Florida. Yeah, we're back into the groove, which I said I wasn't going to do, but yeah, it's so easy to get sucked into it. But all yeah. these VA accidents we're looking at just draws attention to the need for good insurance. And you know, and one of our sponsors is Avemco. Yeah, and uh, we're very proud to have them as a, as a sponsor of the show. And I I, I got to believe that they're beside themselves with all that's going on. Yeah. But you need to protect your family and other people from aviation mishaps. So if you're in the need of aviation insurance, if you're going to buy an insurance, you're going to start flying again, right? Make sure you have adequate coverage. Give Avemco a call, 888-879-0389. I got it this time. Way to go. All right. Give them a call. And check out the rates. You get 5% discount for just mentioning the show. They're the number one general aviation insurer in the United States and probably the world. Uh, and they're nice people to deal with. Yep. Todd and I spent a lot of time with them recently. And, uh, and uh, I was impressed by their, their knowledge and their, the mannerisms they have when they're talking to their customers or potential customers. It's... Uh, I think they're a first-class operation. So if you need insurance, give the bank a call, 888-879-0389. And we're also brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association. And uh, if you need to talk to, or if you're a mechanic and you want to talk to somebody at PAMA, uh, drop them a line at pama.org. And or you can call me. So let's... Uh, Let's get on and see if we can help people understand what not to do in aviation. And I'd like Todd, to... Todd, why don't you cue us up with this accident? Well, our first accident today will be a, uh, from Auburn Township, Ohio. There was a loss of control and flight accident involving a Piper. And this was interesting for a bunch of reasons. Uh, most prominently, the decision-making that was done on the part of the pilot, not just one decision, several decisions and because unfortunately this pilot did not survive the flight in my opinion these weren't good decisions 
And uh, Greg, I think you have a few things to say, family friendly, of course, about those decisions. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, in, in looking at this accident, of course, Todd, you know, dissecting it, it was a uh, recently minted private pilot. Pilot was 55 years old. He had received his private pilot certificate two months before the accident. He was uh, flying a uh, Piper PA-28-180, which is a Piper Arrow, small engine uh, Piper Arrow. Um, there was no information in the NTSB report as to whose airplane it was as far as when he may have purchased it or did he borrow it, rent it, whatever. It sounds like he may have owned this airplane and, um, and he had been uh, with his girlfriend and her daughter camping in Kentucky but was using the airplane on uh, the day of the accident to fly the girlfriend's daughter from Kentucky up to uh, Cincinnati, uh, to Lunkin Field, drop her off so she could get a commercial flight. And uh, he's sitting on the ground, it's in the evening, it was about 6, 6 p.m. When, uh, when they landed, but he ended up having to delay his flight due to weather. Now, again, the board report doesn't really get into where that weather was that uh, he was sitting on the ground for, but it is apparent that uh, he, he delayed his, uh, his flight to, uh, I presume, home. Um, and, uh, and in waiting for that weather to clear, he finally decided that it was time to go. But now, by now, it's 10 o'clock at night, and um, he's got about an hour plus flight. He never got a weather briefing, according to the board and all of the sources they checked. Um, so right there, that's strike number one. You're going to be flying at night. You know that there's an area of weather. And in this case, um, it's convective weather. So not to get a weather briefing or be thoroughly briefed or even factor in that, given the fact that you are a newly minted private pilot trying to fly a flight. 10 o'clock at night, dark and stormy night, if you will, he, uh, he takes off. Shortly after he takes off, he's talking to his girlfriend via text messages, talking about the weather, and um, actually was sending her pictures of this convective weather. Now, I, I haven't seen the pictures, but uh, he, <laughs> he's texting her, and he bothers to ask, hey, what's the weather like where you are? Because that's where he was going, and she responds that it's raining hard and thundering. Now, you're flying to destination. You don't have an instrument rating. You're a newly minted private pilot. It's late at night. You've probably been up most of the day. So now you're running on the backside of your energy management curve. That is the one that's up in your brain because of fatigue. But now you have this little, you know, inkling of get there, get there, get there, get there, itis. And, um, and so while she's telling him by a text that the weather's lousy, he continues to bore on. He gets to within nine miles of his destination. And again, based on uh, local weather reports and witness reports, um, even though there was a cloud ceiling at 5,000 feet, uh, the locals in that particular area said that there was a low cloud deck and that the weather was moving in. Of course, uh, when the airplane then did crash, uh, it was a high energy uh, uh, impact into trees, uh, made, a, made a significant mess of the airplane. 
And so, of course, the board looked at it and said, well, you know, the probable cause of this accident due to pilot inexperience and, and poor pre-flight planning as far as weather was, um, was spatial disorientation. Now, I'm not necessarily sure that it was spatial disorientation for the very fact that one of the findings that the board did talk about in its factual report was that this pilot in the autopsy, it was determined that apparently he had some prior heart issues. That is a, there were scar tissue that would signify that he had a heart attack and he had a 95% occluded left ventricle artery right there. I mean, those are two things that really concern me because even though this obviously was a loss of control type accident, to blame it on spatial disorientation and the board actually tried to justify it in their report. I wanna know how they delineated the loss of control, which is the overall issue, whether that was attributed to spatial disorientation or incapacitation, how do you delineate that? And so while yes, it has the telltale signs of loss control due to spatial disorientation where you have that proverbial the airplane rolls off on a wing and then, you know, goes into a high speed dive and ends up hitting trees in the ground in a high energy state. What was the initiating factor? A vestibular issue with spatial disorientation or now you're flying in an environment where it's very high stress, very high anxiety. Night, basically IFR, you're a BFR pilot, brand new and you're trying to navigate. And while, yeah, you could have had a loss of, uh, of spatial orientation, who's to, who's to really know that because of that high stress, high anxiety environment and situation, at least the physiological part of it, that didn't bring on a heart attack or some sort of stress that would be incapacitating to, to the pilot. And again, it would result in a loss of control because he can no longer function. So, I mean, there's a lot of elements to this accident, Todd. Well, there's well, a, lot of, a lot of elements to a lot of these accidents, but Greg, you, you raised, as I'm sitting here listening to you, uh, just so many points with this, this accident as well as others. Now, as you know, when I was at the board, I would raise holy hell about thin reports is what I would call them, without a lot of factual information in them, without a lot of clearly defined what we looked at and found nothing, sentences. Yes. So they were essentially one pages that contributed nothing to the to aviation safety. So we, we pulled down, I don't know, 10 or a dozen accidents over the last few weeks to queue them up. And many of them were so weak on facts that it just it boggles my mind, really. Did they do it? Did they go once over lightly and not court it? I don't know. Don't know the answer. But it contributes so little to the scheme of, of data analysis for accidents. Now, when you were in IIC, you, you not only did the general aviation accidents for a number of years, you were office, an office manager in a couple of locations yeah. uh, managing general aviation accidents. Is there not a standard 
don't do we not follow the NTSB guidelines? I mean, is if you go online, I used to have the book in my office that all the things that you're supposed to do at an accident scene and beyond to make a good report. But yet I go through these reports and I find anything but that information in them. John, you know, I, I was I was blessed when I started with the NTSB at a very young age. Um, I was mentored by people that you read about in a lot of the aviation safety books. And, um, and I had a, a good boss out here in the Denver office when I was working. Um, uh, Baker was one of those kind of guys where he was a stickler for detail. And he taught me very well with regard to making sure that I did a thorough and methodical investigation. And he, he would point out the flaws in the investigation. He'd asked me a lot of questions, some of which I could answer. He goes, well, don't you think that's important? You should put it in the report. Or if those questions couldn't be answered, he goes, go get me an answer. Even if it has nothing to do with the accident, go get me an answer. Because that ensures thorough and methodical. And that has really been the, the premise of the board and its investigative, uh, not only their investigative authority, but their investigative responsibility, thorough and methodical. And a lot of these general aviation reports that we've been seeing now over the years that we've been dissecting and we've been talking about, and in fact, some of it has gotten a little more pervasive in some of the bigger aircraft accidents that we've dissected. And you and I are going to be dissecting a couple of them that in the future, uh, we have to wait for some issues to get resolved you and I are going to light them up for not doing thorough and methodical, but yes, there is a playbook. Yes, there should be thorough and methodical. And, and even in this accident, um, they, they collected some information. They, they interviewed the, the, uh, the pilot's girlfriend. They did get all of that background, but what was preceding that? I would have looked back to try and find his flight instructor. I would have looked back to find other people that had flown with this guy to get a character study. Was he one of those types of guys where it was kick the tires, light the fire and, you know, hold on, here we go and hold my beer, watch this. Because it's apparent that just from the facts that we know in this case, this weather, as bad as it was, didn't seem to deter him or at least get him thinking about one, not going or two, going somewhere else because where he was trying to go wasn't very good. And so, uh, you know, we have seen a waning of that kind of information. And like you talked about, John, um, you know, yeah, these reports are thin. Um, in my afterlife, after I left the agency and doing the work that I'm doing now and the, the amount of dissection um, that I do with a lot of these accidents, I'm finding out stuff through other means that yes it takes me time but at least I find it out and I'm thinking well if I was at the NTSB all of this would be readily available because I'd be a fed and I wouldn't have to jump through a bunch of hoops I could just you know go directly to the source I can't do that now but if I can get it well after the fact I mean I'm not talking you know days or months I'm talking years after the fact and get this good information I just don't understand why the NTSB investigators don't get it while they're doing an active investigation. It just, it just bewilders me. Um, we've had Jason McCassick on, a friend of our show, that we've talked about this. And, and again, 
like you said, where is the safety benefit in all of this? Okay, so now we chalk this up to another inexperienced pilot, spatial disorientation. Okay, great. But okay, that adds to a statistic. So that's one more number to spatial disorientation cases. But how do I, as a pilot, how do I, as a flight instructor, benefit from this accident? Because there's no real safety uh, benefit from reading this report other than, you know, you got a guy who had <laughs> physical issues with possibly a heart attack. He makes bad decisions and crashes. What do I take out of this other than adding them to the statistical database? I, I don't know. Todd, there is, there is I mean, one potential thing I actually saw yeah. here, which, uh, you know, when we first looked at it, it's like, uh, what's this guy doing texting his girlfriend for weather information? Last step back and I thought to myself, in the <laughs> yeah. modern era, that is the era beyond when we started. Yeah, we started before there were, there were telephones even. But now, because of technology, we actually had the text messages going back and forth that we can put as information. It tells us a couple things. One, he was trying to get information from the other airport. Hooray for that. But there's no evidence that this person tried to go through the sources you usually go through for weather information, actual aviation weather information. Now, yeah. if you were an instructor, it's like, look, folks, if you have someone at the destination airport, it's okay to text them to see what's the weather like as a reality check to the official information. But if you don't do the first step, the official information, what are you doing? You shouldn't be flying. And again, oh. this is a slow educational process, but the folks who are coming up, even if you're getting your license at 55 years old, we collectively have to assume that all the modern conveniences, the pluses and minuses, are going to be part of the reality. And the training has to incorporate that. And in, in following on with that, in reading this report, this pilot never talked to an air traffic controller at all. He went silent from the time he took off till the time he crashed. There is no um, uh, radio communication between him and any air traffic control facility. And I'm thinking, how in the hell can you get out of Lunkin Airport without talking to anybody late at night? And in route, especially when you know there's weather, don't you think you wanna find out from an air traffic controller some weather updates? Then you start thinking, well, ignorance is bliss. If I don't know about it, I can't use it as an excuse. Who knows? You know what? This guy, this guy flew 31 hours, 31.5 hours in the last 30 days. So he's been flying a lot. VFR. So he have known better. Yeah. Yeah. But, he only had about three hours of, of simulated instrument time and supposedly 11 hours at night. Don't know under the conditions. That's why I would go back and examine his logbook. I would go back and definitely talk to his flight instructor to see what kind of personality there is. We've had a discussion on this show <clears throat> about advisory circular 60-22, which is 30 pages put out by the FAA that talks about aeronautical decision-making. And when you start doing a character study, which is an integral part of acts investigation, um, you have to look at those hazardous attitudes that will put you in a position. And I wish the board had talked about that because there are the learning lessons. Advisory Circular 60-22, which talks to ADM, aeronautical decision-making, is something that's critical. Why? 
because the FAA requires us as pilots to answer questions, both not only in the written, but in the practical test about aeronautical decision-making. That's what they evaluate you on. They talk about you know, um, this aeronautical decision-making or decision-making and judgment. Those are two critical areas that you're evaluated on when you're going for a certificate or a rating, but they are the most subjective as well based on what the evaluator, the FAA designee or the FAA themselves or a Czech airman, they're using that as a baseline to determine whether or not under certain situ situations, you're going to make a good decision. You're going to utilize all the information. You're going to utilize the tools necessary to make an informed decision. These are the benefits. These are the learning lessons. I mean, it is sad that this pilot chose to uh, get up there with his cowboy attitude and rock and roll and think he could do something that really he had no business even considering. Um, you know, and it was one of those accidents where I almost made it. I almost made it. I almost made it. Nine miles short of almost making it. Um, but I've seen too many of these. And over the years of doing this work for better than 41 years now, um, it's always been, I'll see how bad it is. And if it looks bad, I'll turn around. I'll go back. I'll do something else. Guess what? That's when I get involved because they never turn around. And if they do turn around, it's too late. And when I get to see them, is when that airplane is spread all over the countryside. And it's just sad, but we have to use these accidents to encourage better pre-flight decision uh, planning. And, and John, you talk about it on every single show for this pilot to know that the weather is lousy. In fact, delay his flight because of weather and then not utilize the services of trying to find out what the weather is going to be like along his route of flight and think he can just bore through it and make it. I, I just don't understand that kind of attitude. Yeah, it defies description. Defies no, though, in his spot and his, his not getting the help that was readily available to him. And it, you know, there's a couple other interesting things in this accident that the board doesn't talk very much about, but it's the details is in the report. And one is that the airplane had 300 hours, a little more, 304 hours on it on the airframe since the last inspection. That means that there was at least 200 hour inspections that were not accomplished. What did, what did this guy think that this thing's gonna run forever? And we know as to own the aircraft in any of the records. So that was a, a, I don't understand that why it wasn't there, maybe an oversight, but not listing who owns the aircraft. Was it his? Uh, did it belong to somebody else and he was flying the heck out of it because he could? Yeah, it just says that the uh, operator is on file. And again, so this is a public report. I mean, aircraft information registered owner is, is on the public side of the FAA's website. You can look up any end number and find out who owns it. Why not put it in the report? I don't I. I there's just some stuff. The only thing I will say about this, the only thing I will say about this in a positive way <clears throat> is the fact that there happened to be a section which I've never seen before in an NTSB report. And I don't know if you guys noticed it in the report, but there, towards the end of the report, it says, there's a heading that says preventing similar accidents. 
reduced visual reference requires vigilance. And I don't know where this came from. Um, it's, it, there, is a, um, there is a link to an NTSB safety alert for additional resources, but it talks about two thirds of general aviation accidents that occur in reduced visibility weather act, uh, conditions are fatal. The accidents can involve pilot spatial disorientation or controlled flight into terrain. Even visual weather conditions, flights at night over areas with limited ground lighting, which provides few visual ground references can be challenging. All of that is great information. Um, and I know that they're using that to support their, their uh, probable cause for spatial disorientation and loss of control. Here's the one for you, John. Pre-flight weather briefings are critical to safe flight. In-flight weather information can also help pilots make decisions, as can in-cockpit weather equipment that can supplement official information. In-cockpit equipment requires an understanding of the features and limitations. And that goes to what you were talking about, Todd, and the fact that, yeah, <laughs> texting your girlfriend to find out what the weather's like at the other end isn't really official and isn't going to really help you other than when they say, it's raining like crazy, thundering and lightning. That should clue you in that destination is probably <laughs> not going to be where you intended. And also, this is an opportunity to say that uh, although this wasn't part of the report, and I'm not going to for a moment blame the uh, girlfriend or the girlfriend's daughter, but if you have a loved one who's a pilot who you think is doing something that is not in that pilot's best interest or the family or the group's best interest, Step up and say, look, I love you. I want to see you tonight, but I'll feel a lot better if you you know, check into a five-star motel tonight and we do this tomorrow. Or, hey, I'm not going to be a part of this. If you want to help me to help you give you a weather report when you're the pilot, you're the one who's supposed to be doing this. I'm not going to be a part of it. And you bring up a good point there. And that is, um, you know, checking into a motel. One of the things that um, we've always talked about, it's always in the back of our head as a general aviation pilot, is the fact that, hey, <laughs> the best laid plans of mice and men may not happen. And that is that <clears throat> today I'm expecting to take off, I'm going to go fly to destination. But oh, by the way, the weather didn't cooperate. Now, we see it uh, in uh, <laughs> today in Colorado, um, we went from 80 degrees to now 35 degrees. I think it's 35, 34 degrees. Uh, we're expecting some snow for the first time here in the front range. It's been snowing up in the mountains. We are now getting into our ski season. We are now getting into our winter season out here where especially with kids that are, you know, have been uh, unable to really do anything over the last year and a half because of COVID. Now all the vacations are going to start. All the kids and the families are going to come out here to go skiing. But now I'm limited on time. I only got five days. The weather isn't cooperating. And that press to, well, we only got five days, you know, and I can't afford not to fly out there. And now you start to put that risk quotient into high gear. And all of a sudden, now you start trying to justify bad decisions. Well, the weather isn't that bad. Yeah, it's IFR, but it's not that bad. Yes, it is. It's really bad. And you shouldn't come out here today out of my airport where my office is, the ceiling is pretty low. You're going to have to shoot an approach to get in here. And oh, by the way, because of the moisture in the air and the temperature, uh, there's probably icing. Little airplanes and ice don't like each other. 
So now the question is, what's your plan B? You have plan A, and that is go to point from point A to point B. But what is your plan B? That if you can't get to destination, where are you going to put down? Where are you going to overnight? Where are you going to wait this out? And and plan B just seems to fall by the wayside a lot of times when you're trying to race the clock um, for better or worse. You're racing the clock because the family's counting on, well, you said we were going to go skiing. You said we were going to do this. You said we were going to do that. And now all that induced pressure is on you and you're trying to accomplish the mission. And unfortunately, we're getting into that time of the year, especially out here, where I'm afraid we're going to see those accidents ramp right back up. There's a personal event that we all three shared that could be uh, illustrating some of the points we talked about here. We happened to be at Oshkosh this year, a few months ago, uh, first time it happened in a couple of years, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of aircraft showing up. And then one day we're looking at the news and they had this weather report. And I want to make sure I got the phrasing right. The forecast was for light tornadoes. Yeah, light, light tornado. <laughs> I, I, I still think that's pretty classic. I, I I've been trying to find out what the difference between a light tornado and a heavy tornado is. But yeah, light tornado. But there are a number of small aircraft, which again, people went out of their way flying across the country to be there. This is like the highlight of the season. Yeah. And they probably got the same report we did. A lot of folks got their airplanes and skedaddled out of there. And, you know, in my opinion, that was a reasonable choice that they made because even though they weren't flying at the time, their aircraft were at risk. And they said, well, you know what? I love being here. Yeah. I can't stand the fact that I have to leave, but I'm going to make the right decision when the weather's still good, getting out while the getting's good. Yeah. I don't know, John. I mean, you know, you preach it. I mean, every single show this is an, a classic example of a guy who just disregards all of the good information. And, and I can understand why, because like I said, ignorance is bliss. If I don't know about it, then I don't have to worry about it. And I'll worry about it later on. Unfortunately, nine miles from destination, he probably was worried about it. And uh, things, you know, he got behind the power curve mentally and physically and ended up losing that airplane. But again, you know, it's a critical factor in all accidents with regard to, I, I can guarantee that all the accidents we look at in some way, shape or form, if you really dissect them, there is some lost element in a pre-flight, either the aircraft or pre-flight planning for the flight that while, yeah, it may not have caused the accident, it just contributed to the chain of poor decisions you know, not utilizing all the best available information to make the best available decision. And, and again, how do we change that? How do we influence that? Because we still have a high number of loss of control accidents going on. I've been beside myself with that whole process. I mean, I tell my friends, people that I come in contact with, that the first uh, pre-flight you should do is go on at home. You should make an assessment before you leave to go to the airport if it's the type of weather and conditions that you want to fly in. And if you do that before you leave home, you relieve yourself of some of the pressure that you've now put on yourself. If you drive to the airport and get ready to go fly and you go and sit and do a, your, your pre-planning session 
you know, weather's bad. Now you're going to try to find ways to work around it. You're going to try to find ways to get the, the, the flight done in some shape or form. And you're going to increase the risks. Where if you'd put all that in the equation before you left home, you might have said, you know what, I'm going to delay an hour or two to see what, what happens with the weather. And you take that pressure off yourself. So that's one of the things that I've been telling my friends, along with doing that very thorough pre-planning session before yeah. you walk out to your airplane, and then naturally uh, doing a very thorough pre-flight inspection before you get in it to, to go someplace. And that's really where um, a personal FRAT or flight risk assessment tool comes in. Um, that has evolved um, over about the last 10, 12 years with uh, SMS safety management systems and doing risk assessments and that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of folks that I talk to in the general aviation ranks don't think they need it. Hey, I, you know, I'm just going out on a local flight. I'm just doing this. I'm just doing that. I'm not going very far. Even if you don't do a written frat, you really should come up with a, you know, a minimum of checklist items. Okay. You know, what's the weather? How do I feel? You know, the FAA is always pushing. I'm safe. That is doing a self-assessment physically and mentally of whether or not I'm prepared to fly that particular day. Now I know there are going to be people that, you know, yeah, they don't feel good. Yeah. They have a cold. Yeah. They have other things, but they'll justify why they're going to go anyway. And, and again, they don't have that operational discipline to just say, you know what, I'm not doing this today. You know, what drives me crazy when I say those similar things to, to pilots at the FBO or wherever I am with them and they come back with, yeah, but yeah, but. that's, that like lights my fuse. Yeah, but I, I know what's coming after that. They're going to justify any kind of a stupid uh, yeah. situation they're in. It, it just drives me crazy to hear that. But it's funny you would mention the frat because I, I uh, well, about three weeks ago in one of my classes at Vaughn, we've been talking about the frat. And I just took the frat that I developed for the 135 operator that I worked for for years. And it's uh, four pages. It's way too big for general aviation. But yeah. it's one third or more of the class of I want to be pilots. I, I've been taking it into class and say, what can we take from this document that would help a pilot? So we've been taking it page by page by page. And uh, this coming Friday is the, the, the last page, so to speak. And we'll, we're gonna have a document for those, those students and the pilots in the flight program, a one pager that they can use uh, for their own personal use mm -hmm. to just tick marks, just check it off. Yeah. But the comments that I received from some of them about the, if we use a number system, one to five, with high, five being the higher risk, uh, challenging some of the high risk numbers. And I, I just shake my head saying, you, you know, when you're young, you're a risk taker. Yeah. I take that into consideration. But when you're flying, you want to lower the risk as much as you can. And I, these guys are taken in a, in a system that in the particular system that I had, uh, 40 points is a no-go. And they're challenging a couple of the five pointers, mm -hmm. which we already know from experience a high risk. And they're trying to lower them down to two and saying, you know, guys, you got to take a better look at, at uh, the risk that you're attaining here by discounting these systems. Well, the hardest thing to do, John, is do a self-assessment. <laughs> um, 
You know, it's real easy for me to be critical of others. I'm always critical of you, <laughs> you know, because the Wright brothers didn't do you any justice. So hey, but, we didn't have any of those problems. <laughs> Just <low. Yeah. laughs> but, you know, as a flight instructor, you know, you can be critical of a student and their performance. You try not to be, you want to be encouraging, not discouraging. Um, but when you look in the mirror, you have to be honest with yourself. Am I ready to do this? Do I have the skills, abilities, and knowledge to be able to do this? Do I have the equipment capable of doing this? And am I prepared for all the contingencies that I need to have in the back of my head if plan A does not continue to work? Yeah, that's the one that kills me as well. I often ask pilots when they're getting ready to walk out the door of the FBO to go. And you know, it's always the single or the small twins I ask this question of. That engine failure right after liftoff what are you going to do yeah yeah and it's rare that i get an answer that, that it's meaningful like they thought about it it's all well let me think for a minute but you know one of those but it's rare for a pilot to turn around and say you know i'm continuing on and you know because there's one runway that runs into a hill so if you're taking off in that direction you need to be planning on what you're going to do yeah. Well, the big thing here comes up quick. Yeah. Well, I think the, the takeaways from this particular accident, of course, are, you know, thorough pre-flight planning, especially for somebody with the experience level that this pilot had. He only had 142 hours total time. Um, like I said, he had only gotten uh, his private supposedly a couple of months before. Now, while he may have flown quite a bit in those two months, was that really experience or was he just, you know, flying point A to point B and logging time? One of the things I've written about um, is a human factors element in a um, special or at least a, a study that I did for Mitsubishi years ago with regard to the MU-2 and, and some of the issues that were transpiring with that airplane is that we train for all of these, you know, disasters, if you will, these abnormal emergency situations. And in the training environment, it's one thing, especially as a new uh, private pilot, because you got a flight instructor to bail you out. But now you put yourself in those positions. You have nobody to turn to except yourself. And I've done accidents where I've had uh, pilots, you know, literally screaming at the air traffic controller to help them. Um, you got to help me, you got to help me. Air traffic controllers sitting on the ground, they can, you know, all they can do is talk in your ear and try and give you some reassurance, but they can't fly the airplane for you. In this case, you don't even have a guy who contacted air traffic control. So he's really left to his own devices to try and figure out what's going on and remedy a situation. Now, he wasn't that high. He was only flying around 2,500, 3,000 feet. You don't have a lot of margin of error and you start to lose the airplane. Um, that you're going to eat up that altitude pretty quick. And it's obvious he did in a high energy state. The fact is, is that it's, it all started before he ever left the ground. That's where this accident sequence started well before he ever left the ground and, um, and the decisions that he made. And I think for those pilots, especially now going forward with, we're transitioning into the winter season where we are going to have not only low ceilings, but we got a lot of moisture in the air. We're going to have icing, not only at high altitudes, but of course, low altitudes. You have to, again, be on top of your game. And, and it really is what you drone in every single week on this show, John, and that is a thorough pre-flight plan. 
And that pre-flight plan needs to have plan A and plan B, and maybe even in some cases, plan C, because your destination could go down, even your alternate could go down. And again, it's all about really understanding whether we have all these tools, whether it's four flight wing X, uh, Garmin pilot, it does not matter. Or just go to the uh, NOAA website for, uh, for aviation weather. It doesn't matter what source you use, but you need to understand what that weather and what that weather system is doing to your intended flight. And you need to pay attention between point A and point B. You know, I, I see the comments of oftentimes from people, uh, well, I'm going to go see what the weather is and turn around and go back. Meanwhile, it closes in behind you and there is no going back. Yep. And we saw that with American 1420. Here you got an airline operation. They were trying to shoot the gap between two thunderstorms uh, going eastbound. There was no turning around to go back because those thunderstorms had merged behind them. So that closed that and took that option away. So it can happen. It's very dynamic. We all know that as pilots, weather is dynamic. And, uh, and so you have to be prepared. And if you're not prepared or you think you're going to be able to you know, I'll figure it out on the fly, if you will. No, you won't, because you got too many other things going on. And then, oh, by the way, if you got your family on board, you got them pushing you. You've got them worried. You've got to deal with that mentally. And again, none of us are that good to be able to handle all of those situations, especially flying single pilot, dark and stormy night. It's just too much to be, uh, to be efficient and effective in your decision-making if you don't have a pre-plan. Yeah, well, I think we hammered the hell out of that. Uh, So, And I'm still gonna say it at the end of the show because I don't think we can say it enough. Yeah, but again, you know, uh, like our sponsor, you talk to a Vemco and uh, they'll tell you um, what their concerns are with regard to the folks that they insure and the statistics they keep weather-related accidents and loss of control are those prominent issues. And, you know, they're an insurance company. They want you to be safe. They don't want to have to pay out on your behalf in any way, shape, or form. They have, they have classes online. You can, you can actually, you know, learn things. They'll give you a discount. They, what they try to do is encourage you <laughs> to take advantage of these tools that you never have to leave your home to utilize. And, and we don't, I don't think um, as a general aviation community, we take advantage of all of the information that's available. It's kind of like, well, again, you grew up with the Wright brothers, so that's a little old. But for me, you know, when I was going to school, it was one thing because I'd have to go to the library or, you know, my parents bought a whole, you know, set of Britannica encyclopedias. That was great. That was a resource. Now, um, I mean, if I went back to, to school and went through high school and, and junior high, uh, you know, with the internet, I'd be magna cum laude. Um, just because there is, I mean, instant access to so much information. Why not take advantage of it? It's not that hard. And everybody, when you think about your day, John, you have eight hours to sleep, basically. You have eight hours to work, if you're working. And then you have eight hours of whatever you want to do. Why not take advantage 
in that eight hours of whatever you want to do and carve out even just 30 minutes to pull something up on the internet and learn something new about flying. Especially if you take that 30 minutes to watch an episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Exactly. What a what a segue. Way to go, Todd. <laughs> yep. So, uh, well, I know that, uh, like you said, John, we beat this to death, but we can't emphasize it enough. And um, and our sponsor, Avemco Insurance, appreciates the fact that we beat on these issues because it has a direct effect on them. It has a direct effect on us, not only for our safety, but those of us that own airplanes it directly affects our insurance rates. So, I mean, let's be the best pilots we can be. And we have the tools. We have no excuses. You don't have an excuse as a pilot that, you know, I didn't know that, or I couldn't get that. Sure you can. Just type it into the computer. Type it into your Google search engine. You'll get it. Yeah, I listen every day to, to something on aviation. Yes. Every day. And sometimes, uh, like yesterday, I spent several hours just listening and going through here. I took some, I spent at least an hour yesterday on aerodynamics, mm-hmm. right? Just, just curiosity went in and started looking and then it just sucked me in, so to speak. And I spent the, over actually over an hour just reading about aerodynamics. Yeah. It changes on per, you know, the type of airplane you have, what type of wing, you know, do you have a high wing load, low wing load, you know? Yeah. How does a wing stall? You know, different shapes wings stall different ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it it is entertaining because a lot of the presentations now are entertaining. They're full of graphics, um, animations, and things like that. So there's no excuse not for a pilot or for a pilot not to learn something new every single day. So Well, John, I know that uh, Todd has been sitting here choreographing this. Uh, He did some research on this accident and other accidents that we're going to be dissecting in the future. So we're going to be hammering home some additional points, I think, uh, um, especially over the next several months because of the change in weather. We're going to do a number of weather related accidents that have a different twist to them whether it's icing or, you know, a light tornado versus a heavy tornado or something else. But uh, we're going to be, uh, we're going to be trying to learn lessons from these, uh, these tragic events. So uh, Todd, before I turn it over to uh, John, as I always do for his last word, any closing comments from you? Well, the one thing I keep emphasizing is that although we've been around for decades in aviation, there are so many more ways to access insights and education. So many more ways to stay in touch with it, with aviation. Uh, you don't have to, go, to get into your car and go to an airport. You don't have to wait for specialized materials to show up at your door. It's there at your fingertips all the time. And if you have one of these in your pocket, and all of you do, no excuses. Take action. Exactly. Well, John, with that... My friend, I will leave you to uh, close us out with our sponsors and, of course, the last word. But I want to encourage folks that, <clears throat> look, we, we love hearing from you. You can always contact us uh, through the website or at our email at flightsafetydetectives with an S at gmail.com. Uh, we really appreciate the feedback that we're getting, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, John and I, there's a couple of comments that I always appreciate. 
well, you know, people agree with everything we talk about a lot of the time. Yeah, we get those people who try to educate us. But if you're going to educate us, be sure you have your facts straight before you try to educate those of us that live in this world of factual information. Um, but we do find it entertaining. And of course, we think that uh, our, our listeners and viewers will find it entertaining. So John and I are trying to figure out um, how we present it so that, uh, hey, look, you know, keeps us on our toes. And, and that's what it's all about. So with that, my friend, John, I will let you close us out and leave you with the last words. Okay. Well, second last word is, uh, it was uh, yesterday, I had a couple of good laughs because I did some of our emails yesterday and I actually called up a few people that had sent pretty good emails mm. and they had, they, in their address, they actually had their phone numbers. Mm. I called them. Yeah. And every single one of them was shocked. shocked. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great phone call. Uh, but you know if you send us a good email you might just get a call back yeah well we we like talking to people that i mean that helps educate us because it gives us a different perspective of the facts that we present yes yes all right so in closing the show let me remind everybody that the show was brought to you by pama the professional aviation maintenance association pama.org as well as a vemco insurance if you need general aviation, hull insurance, liability insurance, flight instructor insurance, any kind of re, uh, general aviation related coverage, give Avemco a call. You get a discount just for mentioning the show. You get a discount for any safety programs you've participated in. I mean, they're, they're a great company to deal with. Give them a call, 888-879-0389. And chat them up, even if you're not insured by them. They'll give them a call. You can talk about insurance or anything else. Many of them are pilots. Most of, in fact, everyone I've run into are very knowledgeable on general aviation issues. So give them a call. And as I always say, if you're going to go flying, please do a very thorough plea planning session. All right, whether where you are, whether where you're going, whether in between, all right, fuel. Some of the accidents that we, we're preparing, we're queuing up, have fuel issues. You know, a pilot estimated that in one of them, he estimated he had four hours of fuel. Flying time was 345. Give me a break. <laughs> I, I mean, really, give me a break. You're going to do that? So we're going to get into that show pretty soon. So please do a quick pre-planning job. When you go out to your airplane, do a thorough pre-flight inspection. Touch your airplane, touch your flight controls, move them. And once you get in the air, fly as safely as humanly possible. Thanks for listening.